Welcome to the Scotts Hill Podcast. At Scotts Hill, our mission is to join God in His work of transforming lives. One of the ways we join God is by studying and proclaiming His Word. So each week, our podcast features our Sunday morning sermons where one of our pastors explains, illustrates, and applies the Bible to our lives. We hope that you are challenged and encouraged by the Word of the Lord. One of the things we're about at Scotts Hill is joining God in his work of transforming lives. We put it in that way because you and I do not have the power to transform a life. We can't even transform our own lives. It's only through the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God working together to change us from the inside out. And one of the things that gives us great joy is to watch week after week after week the transformation that is constantly taking place in your life, my life, and in our lives. Those of you who are watching us online, thank you for inviting us into your home. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, thank you for being there as we um, begin our time together. Um, this we are into football season now. We're in the third week of college football, the first week of professional football. And as you know, as we come into this time of the year, there's always a lot of hype. There's a lot of excitement. There's all kind of anticipation. Everybody pulling for their team, hoping their team is going to move towards a national championship. And there are all kinds of stats that are given. After the first week, there is a lot of joy from some people, and there's a lot of disappointment from other people because their teams just didn't do as well. And the same is true with the the NFL. This last week, we launched into a new season of professional football. And the hype and the excitement and all of that stuff was certainly there, wasn't it? Especially Monday night. Monday night football last week was one of the most hyped up games for the entire season. That's because the New York Jets have acquired a new quarterback in Aaron Rodgers. And Aaron had moved from Green Bay, long time there, to the New York Jets in New York City, and they were excited because Aaron Rodgers was going to be the answer for them. They had not been to a playoff since 2010, and so the Jets were losing hope. They built a strong team. They brought Aaron Rodgers in. They were going to play the Buffalo Bills on Monday night, and it was nothing but hype. If you watch the game, the, the, the pregame show was exciting. It was electrifying. Apparently, everybody in the stadium was given a wristband with green lights on it. And then the stadium lights went off, and all you saw was this green glow all over the stadium. People screaming and hollering. The team's on the field. Aaron Rodgers comes running out of the locker room with an American flag. He's running down on the field. Everybody's going into a frenzy. They have the, the, the pregame um, interviews and the stats and the Jets were picked to win. And they were so excited. This was going to be their year. This was going to be their time. Their new team with Aaron Rodgers, man, it was done. The kickoff comes along, Aaron Rodgers gets the ball, and then on the fourth snap of the game... He gets tackled, and he is injured. You don't really see it, and they thought maybe it was a, an ankle injury. But when they carted him off to the locker room, they later found out that it was an Achilles injury that would take him out for the rest of the season. 
The fans were just, I mean, deflated. Everything seemed to go out. Four plays and Aaron Rodgers' season is over. However, he did get about 19 million a snap in that game. (laughs) He may not be too sad. But then if you watch the rest of the game, what you discovered was, man, it was an exciting game. The Jets ended up pulling it out with their backup quarterback, Zach Wilson, and they won the game. It was excitement that was mixed in the middle of bad news, but then at the end of it was good news. We're in our second week of the study of the book of Romans. And you're probably wondering, what does all of that intro have to do with the book of Romans? Last week when we started, it started out with a lot of excitement, a lot of hype, a lot of anticipation. The apostle Paul begins by telling this incredible testimony about himself, how the gospel has transformed his life. We learned about the man, we learned about the message and the absolute conviction and, that he had in the truth of the message of the gospel. We saw his great ministry and his concern for the people. And he ends chapter one, verses 16 and 17 with this great motivation telling us that I am obligated, I am eager, and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he ends it with chapter, with verse 17, and says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for the righteous shall live by their faith. And he is getting into the gospel, talking about the power of the gospel, talking about how it can transform our lives. And you're thinking, okay, here it comes. He's about to tell us what the gospel is going to do. He's about to tell us what, what, what all the implications of the gospel are and why it's such good news. But then in verse 18, he hits the brakes. He shifts gears. And all of a sudden, there is a change There is this different atmosphere that comes out. Rather than him telling us about the good news that we were anticipating hearing, he pulls the curtains back in verse 18 of chapter one, and he begins to tell us some bad news. In fact, he's going to tell us bad news all the way until the middle of chapter three. And why is it that the Holy Spirit leads Paul to stop abruptly and not telling us the good news, but begin to tell us the bad news? Well, it's pretty simple. You see, good news is only good news when we understand why it's good news. And if we're only going, and if we're going to understand why we need good news, we gotta have a picture of the bad news. Because the bad news always informs us on how wonderful the good news of the gospel really is. And so for the next four weeks, Paul is going to be arguing from a very strategic point of helping us to see why we need the good news of Jesus Christ. And he's going to show us that we need the good news because of God's judgment on us. And he's going to take a different area of how God is judging us. And today we're going to begin by looking at why we need the good news. And we need the good news because of God's judgment on our immorality. He begins there because there's not a person in this room 
that's exempt from a sinful nature. There's not a person in this room that's exempt from sinful practices. There's not a person in this room that's exempt from sinful attitudes and dispositions. And so what does he do? He begins by telling us something that we don't like to hear. He's going to explain to us God's judgment and his wrath on our immorality. And why don't we like wrath? Because wrath is just not a good word, is it? It doesn't seem to be a good thing to set with God. We talk about, but oh, he's slow to anger and he's abounding in love. That is true. But God is a wrathful God. And in these passages, verses 18 to 32, he's gonna give us three truths that you and I need to know about the wrath of God. It's not something you hear often because we like to talk about the soft attributes of God. But I wanna warn you, when you limit God's attributes to only a few that you like, you begin creating a God that's different from the pages of scripture. So here's what we're gonna do. He writes this as a letter to the people in Rome. And I'm going to read it to you as though it was 2,000 years ago. And we received this letter from Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're gonna read verses 18 to 32. You're gonna follow along. I'm gonna read, and we're gonna get the full flow of what Paul is saying. Now he just concludes by talking about the good news. Now he gives us the bad news. Beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up and the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men, likewise, gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God is right in God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, 
but they give approval to those who practice them. Man, when you read that through in its entirety, you get the feeling of things are really bad. And things are really bad when it comes to our relationship with God and because of our own sin. And when he deals with the issue of wrath, there are three things that Paul is going to teach us. And here's what I want us to do for the rest of this morning. We're going to break these passages down into three main points. And we're going to look at what God's wrath is, why it is there, and what are the results of his wrath upon humanity as we walk in our immorality. So let's begin with that. Here's the first thing Paul does. He gives us the revealing of the wrath of God. In verse 18a, he tells us four things about the wrath of God. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. As I said, we don't like to focus and talk about the wrath of God because we don't understand it fully. And here's the four things that we need to know. First of all, Paul gives us the meaning of God's wrath. What does it mean that God is a wrathful God? God is not like you and me when it comes to anger. We like to talk about our anger being a righteous indignation, but the problem is our our anger never stays righteous. It always becomes fleshly, and it's not full in its knowledge. That's why James says the, the anger of man never brings about the righteousness of God. God's wrath is not some ambivalent, fly off the handle, mean, offsetted anger towards someone that's uncontrolled. God's wrath is his settled, faithful, lasting, unchangeable disposition towards sin. It never changes. God's wrath is his fixed attitude towards sin. Because God is holy, he can never wink at sin. He cannot just dismiss sin because sin has a penalty and the penalty for sin is death. And the only way that the wrath of God can be satisfied is through the penalty of death. An innocent person has to die in the place for God's wrath to be satisfied. One man put it this way. I love the way he put it. He says, God's wrath or his righteous anger never rises, never abates. It is always at flood tide in the presence of sin because he is unchangeable and inflexibly righteous. Doesn't matter what culture says. Doesn't matter how our society redefines sin or softens it or gives approval to it. God never will. He is inflexible in his righteousness and in his justice. And because of that, he can never wink at sin, but every single sin has a price. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We'll see it in Romans 3. For the wages of sin is death. We'll see that in Romans 6. And even with the high cost of inflation, the wages of sin is still the same. It never changes. So there's the meaning of wrath. But here's the second thing we need to understand is the moment of God's wrath. It says God's wrath is being revealed. It is something that is constantly happening. 
It's not something that just happened in the past, though it did, but it's something that keeps happening in the future. God's wrath was revealed in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned and they had to die. God's wrath was revealed in Genesis 6 when the men's sin was, was evil continuously and God brings a flood and spares Noah. The wrath of God was revealed in the Tower of Babel and Sodom and Gomorrah and the flooding and the killing of Pharaoh and his army. All through the pages of scripture, we see God's wrath being revealed. It's something that keeps happening. It's not something just of the past or the future. It's even in our day. And many times when we see catastrophes such as we've seen, we've seen moments, we've seen spreading of diseases and fire viruses, many times that is just an expression of God's wrath being revealed among fallen man. So it is something that is constant. Here's the third thing we see about God's wrath. We see the modes of his wrath. There are two ways that God demonstrates his wrath. One of those ways that he demonstrates wrath is what we call a cause and effect wrath. It's something that when you do something, there's a consequence that flows by it. God has created the universe with moral laws and physical laws. And when those moral and physical laws are violated, there are consequences. Just as a man can jump off a tall building, he's going to feel the effects of gravity and violate that, and there are consequences. So when a person walks away from the truth of God's word and wants to live on their own, there are wrathful consequences that follow. They're cause and effect but there's a second kind. There's the personal intervention. That's when God himself steps in at the right time, at the right moment, bringing about the perfect judgment on humanity, always for his glory. But here's a fourth thing about it. There's a means of God's wrath. The means of God's wrath is towards those who are ungodly and those who are unrighteous. What does that mean? That means this. Ungodliness refers to our hatred of God unrighteousness refers to our hatred of one another. And there is a vertical and the horizontal. And when we do not live by the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself, in that area demonstrates ungodliness and unrighteousness of humanity. And then what happens is the wrath of God is released, his judgment. Now, let me just say this. God is perfectly right in his wrath. He is always right in his anger. And as the holy God of the universe, he is perfectly righteous to display his wrath because of our own sinfulness. And because of the sinfulness of our lives, the apostle Paul writes and Ephesians chapter two, he says that we are by nature children of disobedience and children of wrath. Here's the bad news. Because of our sin left to ourselves, we find ourselves under the wrath of a holy God. And when we find ourselves under the wrath of a holy God, we cannot stand in any way in a defense before him because he is holy and we are not. He is just and we are not. And because of that, he exercises his judgment in perfection. The bad news is apart from Jesus Christ, we are children of wrath. That's the revealing that we need to understand that one day every single one of us will stand before him 
And not one of us will have an excuse as we are eye to eye with the creator of all of life. So there's the revealing of the wrath. But now Paul moves to a second thing we need to see, and that's the reasons for the wrath of God. He talked about ungodliness and unrighteousness in a very general sense. Now he's going to be very specific. And he's going to tell us, here are the reasons for the wrath of God. And we're going to see these in verses 18b all the way to verse 23. And I'm going to show you three specific reasons that Paul talks about why we experience the wrath of God specifically. Look what he says in verse 18b. He says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The first reason we are under the wrath of God is the unrighteous refuse to see the truth. We refuse to see the truth. He says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. To suppress the truth means I push it away. It means I don't want to hear it. I don't want to, I don't want to live by it. I want to push it down. I want to ignore it. He says, by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. Here's what he's saying. That they're pushing the truth of God away constantly because they want to live by their own moral standards and to protect and defend their sin. It is this. It's saying, I don't like the standards of God. I don't like the restrictions of God. I don't like what God's word says. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to push the truth away. And I'm going to create my own law. I'm going to create my own truth. I'm going to live my truth. You can live your truth. We can create our own standards and do whatever we wish. Does that sound familiar to our culture? That's where we are today. And there are two ways that we can suppress the truth. There's an irreligious suppression of the truth. What does that mean? These are people who do not want to live according to the word of God. They want to remove it from their lives. So what do they do is they use arguments against God to defend their rejection of the truth. Here's what they say. Well, if God is really loving, he wouldn't let those people in Morocco die by an earthquake. If God is really loving, he wouldn't have let a flood destroy all those people. If God is really loving, he wouldn't let there be this kind of sickness or these kinds of things. All those are smoke screens because they really don't care anything about God. In their irreligious suppression, they're pushing the truth of God away because they want to declare they don't believe in God. Now, you know what's really interesting to me is why atheists are always pushing the truth of God away. You know what I've noticed about atheists? The people who don't believe in God are always talking about God. They're always talking about God. And they're mad at God. I mean, if you don't believe that God exists, why would you be mad at something that doesn't exist? People don't get mad at unicorns. But they get mad at God. And they're pushing the truth away and saying, I don't want to hear it. I don't like it. That's the irreligious suppression. But then there's the religious suppression of truth. And this is dangerous to the church. This is where people are saying, you know, I don't like that attribute about God. I don't like to talk about his wrath. I don't like to talk about that. You know what I want to do? I only want to focus on the things that I like about God. And I'm going to put the other things away. But let me remind you, there's the God we want. And there's the God who is. And the God we want is not the God of the Bible. And so what happens, God's wrath begins to pour out because people are suppressing the truth so they can live by their own standards. But there's a second reason. 
Not only because the unrighteous refuse to see the truth, but the unrighteous reject God as creator. Whenever you push away the truth about God and you don't like the righteous requirements of God, the next step is you're going to reject him as Lord. You don't like his word. You don't like his standards. You don't like his principles. So the next thing you're going to do is, I just don't reject, I'm going to reject him totally. And here's what Paul says. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Now, here's the thing. Many people say, if God would just show himself, then I'll believe that he exists. He's just too invisible. He's too far removed. Paul's saying he does show himself. He shows himself in two ways. He says this, what can be known about God is plain to them. You know what that that is in the Greek? It says that God has shown it to them. That means this, God put it in them. That's the literal Greek rendering. What can be seen about God is plain to them. Why? Because God's put it inside of them. Every human being has an innate understanding that there is a creator. Everyone. Do you know that every nation in the world, every tribe in the world, every people group in the world, sociologists have discovered that they all worship something? They all are giving them something because they know innately that there is a God. And not only that, every single tribe, people, group in the world also operates by a moral code. Within every community, there's a set of moral laws that they operate by as a people because that is put inside of them. Within every human heart, there is this God-shaped vacuum and there is a general revelation that there is a God. I love the story of the atheist who was talking to his little boy one day and he said, listen, son, we don't believe in God. You understand that? He said, yes. And so the dad told him all the reasons he didn't believe in God. He said, now, son, do you have any questions? The little boy said, dad, I have one question. He said, what's that? He said, does God know we don't believe in him? (laughs) There's this innate desire within every person. But not only is it an internal evidence, there's an external evidence. Notice what he says, that his invisible attributes are seen. What are his invisible attributes in the world that we see? We see the wisdom of God and how everything works together perfectly. We see the care of God, how he sustains all of life. We see the creativity of God, how he creates things with such variety. I mean, look at each other in this room. I want you to turn to the person next to you right now, and I want you to say, I'm so glad. No, no, come on, say it like you mean it. I'm so glad. I don't look like you. So what do we see? We see God's invisible, creative attributes working within us, but we also see his divine power working around us. When you look at creation, what do you see? Let's look at at the telescope. We have telescopes that's 200 inches in diameter. We can see 4 billion light years in space, 25 septillion miles into the galaxy. And what we can see is just amazing. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, if you travel, how big is the universe? If you travel the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, if you travel the speed of light, it would take you 125,000 years to get across the Milky Way one of billions of solar systems. 
If you look in a microscope, look at a drop of water, has four atoms in it. And the molecules in a drop of water are so numerous that if you can take the molecules in a drop of water and expand them to the size of a grain of sand, you could build a road a half inch thick, a half, a half mile wide from New York to California in one drop of water. When you look at how God has created our planet, 25,000 miles in circumference and just suspended in space perfectly. It turns at 1,000 miles um, per hour and it moves through the universe 1,000 miles per minute. If it spun any slower, we would float off and die. If it spun any faster, we'd be crushed by gravity and we would die. If it was any closer to the earth, we'd, the sun, we'd be burned up and we would die. If it is any further, we would freeze and we would die. If the axis was changed just slightly, we would what? Die. Everything is perfect. And when you look at all of what God has done, you see his divine power and his attributes all around us. And yet with all of that, we're without excuse. And then what does he say in verse 21? Here's what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God and they did not give thanks to him as God. They rejected him as God. Why? Why do people do that? Because the moment I acknowledge that he's God, then I am accountable to him. And therefore I will not honor him, I will not thank him, and I reject him. So when you refuse to see the truth, and you reject him as creator, here's the third reason, is that we recreate our own God. That's natural. If I'm gonna reject the truth, I'm gonna reject him, refuse the truth, reject him, then I'm gonna recreate my own God. The word today is I'm going to reimagine my own deity. And that's exactly what they do. Notice what he says. He says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, but they became futile in their thinking and they were foolish, their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So what they do? They created their own God. They began to worship the creatures. They began to worship men. They began to worship women. They began to worship animals. They began to worship the earth. Does that sound familiar? And what did they do? They created their own God. We can't have a God who has these kinds of restrictions on us. We can't have a God who's a wrathful God. We can't have a God who's going to allow circumstances in our lives that are painful. We can't have a God who's going to allow people to go to hell. We can't have a God who's going to be opposed to certain kinds of lifestyles. So what do we do? We create our own God. And all across the world in our culture and even in our churches, we have done just that. I don't know if you've heard of the Sparkle Creed, but the Sparkle Creed is a new creed that has been written by a group of individuals who have created their own God. Because they dislike the creed about who God is and his holiness and his glory, they have created their own creed. And this is going viral. And it's this, this woman who is a co-pastor of a Lutheran church in Minnesota is actually using this and their congregation have embraced this. Here's how the creed goes. I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. 
I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit who shatters our image of one white light and refracts into it into a rainbow of gorgeous diversity. I believe in the church of everyday saints as numerous, creative, and resilient as patches on the quilt whose feet are grounded in mud and whose eyes gaze at the stars in wonder. I believe in the calling to each of us that love is love is love. So beloved, let us love. I believe God. Help my unbelief. You think this is a joke? This is real. And churches are quoting this every Sunday. Let me tell you what the unbelief is. The unbelief is in the holy, righteous, just God of the Bible. And as a result, there's a recreation of a God that will only lead them to destruction. That's what Paul is saying. When you suppress the truth of God, the next step is to reject him as king and to develop your own God. And when you do that, you don't have a God you serve. You have a God who serves you. And that God is never as powerful as you are. So what does God do next? He reveals his wrath. Then what he says is he gives us the reasons for it. But here's the third thing. Paul gives us the result of the wrath of God. What is God's result? What does he do? What does God do? A lot of people want this. They say, God, if you would be merciful, if you would be kind, if you would be a just God, you would just leave me alone. You would give me freedom to be able to do what I want. And God does choose to leave us alone when we're in that place. But it's not out of mercy. It's out of his wrath. And because of his wrath, God three times in this passage says that he turns them over to something. Now, this is not the first time this has happened. We see it's true in the Old Testament when the people of Israel in Psalm 81 were rejecting God. He says this, but my people did not listen to my voice and Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. That is God's wrath when he does that, not his mercy. And then he says, Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave them alone. There comes a point where man's rebellion is so much against God that God says, enough is enough. Enough is enough. You want it? I will turn you over to it. And what you think is going to be freedom, what you think is going to be joy, what you think is going to be a release is going to be the worst thing that you will ever experience. And why does he do that? Not only for his glory, but he brings people to the place of absolute despair so that they can see their only hope is in him. So he does three things, three times he gives them over. What does he give them over to? Let's look at it. First, God gives them over to dishonoring lusts. He says, you wanna go your own way? I'll turn you over, verses 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. Who's the creature? The creatures themselves. 
They put themselves at the center of the universe. So God says, you want to go your own way? I'm going to let you go your own way. I'm going to let you drift into impurity. The word for impurity is the word used of a decaying body in a tomb. I'm going to let you experience that what you think is going to be honoring is something that's going to bring you to a place of devastation. And I'm going to let you get turned over to dishonoring your own bodies. And you'll get so much involved in the impurities of life that you will actually begin not having a life that's filled with freedom and joy, but of decay and destruction. So what does God do? He turns them over. And God has done that to so many. I think of the people. We live in a culture that puts so much emphasis on the body. Yet in our culture, the body's so objectified for nothing more than pleasure, not love, but for lust. And when you look at the pornography industry today and the many, many people who are captured by the slave of pornography and their bodies and their minds are given to impurities and lust that they do not even enjoy the plan that God had for them in the beginning. But not only does he do that, here's the second thing he does. He gives them over to degrading passions. I'm gonna turn you over to your lust. And you're going to be dishonored by that. But you're also not going to stay there. You're going to go into degrading passions. And what are those passions? He gives them to us in verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now listen to me carefully. This is one of the most clear scriptures on the devastating effects of homosexuality from the pages of scripture. Paul is not bringing this up just simply because he's picking on people who have same-sex attractions. Why does he bring this up? Here's why he brings it up. Whenever you begin to drift from the truth of God and you reject him as creator, and when God turns you over, what happens is you do not evolve. You devolve into unnatural relationships. The natural relationship is what God created in the garden, a man for a woman for life. And when you pursue the word of God and the righteousness of God and the lordship of God, you pursue that. But whenever we give ourselves over to degrading passions, the thing that always devolves are relationships between men and women. And what we see here is the natural thing is to move into unnatural relationships that's far from God's plan for the goodness of men and women. That's what he's talking about. He's showing how far depravity takes us. And homosexuality is a sin. But it is a sin like other sins. And we'll get into that in just a moment. But what Paul says here, he says you can see the the, the drifting in culture. He begins with women. Do you know that in culture, women are the last ones to usually get heavily involved in pornography and all this kind of sin? Women are the last ones. And when he puts women first, he's showing the absolute brokenness and decay of this culture. In Rome, homosexuality was rampant. In Rome, there were men who were with boys and women who were with girls, but mostly it was the men. Nero himself married a young boy. 
And he himself married an older man where Nero was considered the wife. So homosexuality was not anything new. Paul knew about it. Then he says, even the men are given over to men and doing shameless things. Now, let me just give you something. Homosexuals will take this passage and homosexual groups were saying, no, 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 no. That's not what Paul meant. You see, what Paul meant was this. Paul was speaking against an adult having a relationship with the child, number one. And secondly, when Paul is saying that it's unnatural, what Paul is saying, according to homosexual groups, is that he's speaking to heterosexuals. It's unnatural for you to have a homosexual relationship, so that would be sin for you. It's unnatural for a homosexual to have heterosexual relationships, so that would be a sin for them. So Paul is really saying, just do what's natural to you. And when you go outside of what's natural, then that's when it becomes a sin. Let me just tell you, our feelings and the impressions that we get are not the things that tell us that those things are right. I've been married to my wife for 37 years. And, um, and, and we've great marriage. But what would it be like one day if I come to Chris and I said, honey, listen, I've been feeling for a long time that I want to be a polygamist. I want more than one wife. And I love you dearly, but I would like to have another wife. And these are just the feelings that are deep within me. I'll tell you what would rise out of her. Her feelings of a husband killer would come right out. (laughs) Neither of those are right. And so what Paul is saying here is he's saying, no, I'm not talking about those things. I'm talking about homosexuality is a drifting away from the natural plan of God and is a sign of us rejecting God and his authority. Rosaria Butterfield is a wonderful, wonderful Christian lady. She began early as a lesbian in her life. She was a poster child at Syracuse University. She was both the poster child for lesbianism and liberalism. She debated pastors and others to defend her lifestyle. She began debating this one pastor and, and, and they had a, a debate one night and afterwards the pastor and his wife invited her to their home. She sat down with them, had a meal together and every week she would go to meet with them and they would never talk to her about homosexuality. The only thing they would talk to her about is God's word and they kept taking her back to the garden, taking her back to the garden and the problem with Eve was Eve did not want to submit to God's plan. She wanted to be God and what did she do? By taking the fruit, eating it to become God herself and that was the thing that broke Rosaria Butterfield's heart. She later gave her life to faith in Christ. She is married to a pastor today. She lives in North Carolina and one of her books, this poster child for lesbianism, wrote this in her book. Homosexuality is not the core of our rebellion against God. A desire to be God is. A desire to be the one who gets to declare good and evil, play judge rather than being judged. A desire to use God's creation for our own gratification rather than with pleasure for his own glory. So the problem is this. Whenever we continue to reject, God gives us over to lust, to ungodly passions. But here's the third thing. He gives us over to a depraved mind. That means our minds become so controlled by sin that it impacts every aspect of our life. Verse 28, he says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not be done. What does it impact? Every aspect of our life. Economic disorder. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. 
There's a social disorder. They are filled with envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips and slanderers. It is a spiritual disorder. They're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. It is a family disorder, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice. People who live on unrighteousness believe this, that there's, there's strength in numbers, but they won't be before holy God. So what do we say? What does this mean? L- let me just say something right now. Homosexuality is a sin, but so is gossip. So is drunkenness. So is slander. So is greed. So is covetousness. So is hatred. So is racism. All of those things. And I think that we've done something wrong in the church when it comes to this issue of homosexuality. While we're, cl- we're, we're, we're glad to proclaim that it's a sin and it's unnatural, sometimes we think that God doesn't care about them. Or sometimes we think that we, our sins, are not as bad as sins of homosexuality. But let me just remind you of this. The adulterous man is just as much depraved as the homosexual activist. The young lady who is rebellious towards her parents and despises their leadership is just as depraved as the person dealing with gender dysphoria. The woman who gossips and is malicious and slanders other people is just as depraved as the transgender woman who wants to be the first to have a baby so they can have an abortion. That is depraved. But so is my self-righteousness. And so is my pride. All of those things. You see, the problem is sometimes we look at the other people's sins and we think that their immorality deserves the judgment of God. And God says, what about yours? What about that pride that you think that you can do no wrong? What about the rejection of my word because you don't like what I'm saying about your own sin? You see, what happens is we can put ourselves in different categories, but I love the way the Apostle Paul paints this picture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor the swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is not an exhaustive list. What he's saying is this, left to our own selves, left to our own sin, every one of us is going to feel the wrath of a holy God. And that is the bad news. But here's the good news. Paul says this to conclude this sentence. And such were some of you. 
But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Some of you were just this. Some of you were drunkards. Some of you were homosexuals. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were revilers. Some of you were slanderers. Some of you were haters of God. But the greatest display of God's wrath was at Calvary where God poured his wrath on his son who lived a perfect life and was the only one qualified to be the perfect sacrifice. And by his sacrifice on the cross, he satisfied the wrath of God once and for all. And every person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ is no longer under the wrath of a holy God, but we are now under the grace of a holy God. And we were those people, but we have been justified, counted in the righteousness of Christ. We are being sanctified, changed into the very image of God's son. And one day we will be glorified with him forever and ever and ever. And it is only, it is only through a relationship with Jesus Christ where God poured his full wrath on the cross. So much so that Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? because he has received every heinous sin imaginable. And at that moment, God's wrath is satisfied once and for all. If you're a child of God today, the good news is you will not experience the wrath of a holy God, but you will experience the grace of a savior every single day. Aren't you happy of that? If you are happy of that, don't fight against his word. Don't seek to be the Lord of your life. Don't judge the fallenness of people around you. Because it's only the grace of God that's pulled you out of where they are. Love people with the gospel and share with them the grace that you've experienced even though you deserve his wrath. See, it's one thing for us to say, I'm so happy. Woo! And God says, what are you doing with my word? Are you letting me be in charge of your life? Are you walking in my grace? Are you telling others about me? Embrace that. But let him be the Lord that he is of all of your life. Live your life in such a way that you rejoice in his grace because you've been delivered from his wrath. If you're here today and you're not a believer, listen carefully to me. You're one breath away from standing before a God with whom you cannot hide, with whom you will have no excuse, of whom will judge you rightly, and you have no defense. But today, in his grace, he has said to you that he has already settled the issue of his wrath with his son. Today, will you yield to him? 
Will you submit yourself to him and walk out from the wrath of a God who is righteous in that? That you might walk in the grace of a savior who will deliver you and will set you free. I want to speak for those who may be struggling with same-sex attraction. Listen to me carefully. I don't like the fact that in our culture we use the word gay. Assuming that if you live this lifestyle, you're free and you're enjoying it and, and there's such great joy and anticipation. I have dealt with way too many men and women dealing with same-sex attraction and gay is the furthest thing that they will describe it as. It is devastating. It's depressing. And many of them will use substance to try to curb this constant taunting of the soul. But it's only in Christ Jesus that you can be set free from that. That doesn't mean that you won't ever struggle. That doesn't mean that those feelings are going to go away. But it does mean that you seek to follow him and you submit to his lordship. And rather than you being God, you let him be God of all of your life. So if you're not a believer today, here's where you start. Acknowledge your sin. Recognize the fact that God is real. And one day you will give an account. And today, consider Jesus, your only hope, and yield to him. Thank you for listening. Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 says, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is our hope for you today. If you would like to connect with us, visit our website at scottsill.org slash next steps. Till next time.